Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul began the book of Ephesians with a song of praise in verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1. He then continued with a powerful prayer in chapter 1 verses 17 through 22. Now Paul begins to preach. The first seven verses of chapter 2 are one sentence in the Greek language. Paul begins his sermon with a pathetic description of what we once were in verses 1 through 3. He then continues with a historical analysis of what God did in verses 4 through 6. And then he provides an explanation of why God did it in verse 7. We were rescued from sin and death in verses 1 through 3. We were rescued by love in verse 4. We were rescued for life, verse 5. We were rescued for a reason in verses 6 and 7. So we begin with rescued from death. Look what it says in the opening verse. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul paints a picture of life before we received Christ. He calls that life dead in trespasses and sins. And this provokes an immediate response. People, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. People you know, people you love, people you care about, people you're concerned about, they are dead apart from Christ. And so, the root meaning of the word trespass means a fall, or a lapse, or a crossing of the line, while sin is a reference to an inward condition of sustained corruption. Trespass is something that talks about something on the outside. Sin is something that is talked about something on the inside, which again begs yet another question. How dead is dead. The word trespass again translates the Greek word peritoma, 
If it sounds like a sickness, it's for good reason. It sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Can you, you could probably imagine going to the doctor and saying, you have peritoma. Sounds bad. Yeah. The meaning is falling down when you should be standing up. That's the basic and fundamental meaning. When you should have stood tall, you found yourself falling down. It carries the idea of falling aside, but it carries a much bigger meaning because it means falling aside from the truth, falling away from righteousness, falling away from uprightness. It isn't just simply doing something wrong. It's failing to do what's right when you could have done what was right. It's the word Paul uses in the book of Romans chapter 5 verses 15 through 18 when he describes Adam's disobedience and offense. The Bible describes the law as given by God so that we would come to understand how God views our sin. The word sins is derived from a word that you may or may not be familiar with. It's the Greek word hamartono. The root word hamartia, it means to miss the mark. It was a word that was used in the ancient world to describe a person who would shoot an arrow and then fall short of the target. And so the idea, again, means to wander off the right path, go in the wrong direction. In the case of trespass, it's a special act of sin. And the forms of sin and the phases of sin, it's crossing the line. So we might think of trespass as fall and sin as failure. This fall and failure, this consistent falling and this consistent failure makes us incapable of saving ourselves. That's the idea. The Bible teaches the human heart is wicked and evil. In Jeremiah 17, 9, Genesis 6, 5, Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is wicked and who can know it? We are, to use a metaphor, stillborn spiritually. It's as if we are taken to term, but there's no life. Being dead in trespass and sin implies that the unregenerate human being is incapable of raising themselves to any kind of spiritual being. So it can't mean that you are capable of being, quote unquote, not, not simply a better person, because all of us, I think, can be a better person. The issue here isn't whether or not you can do better than you're doing. The issue is, can you be the kind of man or woman that is acceptable in the sight of God? And the reoccurring challenge of the Bible is, no, you can't. No, you can't. So the fall and failure make us incapable of saving ourselves. So the Bible teaches, again, the human heart is wicked. 
And because we are dead in trespass and sin, it implies that the unregenerate human being is incapable of providing any kind of meaningful spiritual life. Can the dead bring themselves back to life? And the short answer is no. Charles Spurgeon wrote, quote, We believe that the work of regeneration, conversion, sanctification, and faith is not the act of man's free will and power, but the mighty, efficacious, irresistible grace of God, unquote. And I think what Spurgeon meant by irresistible grace is that when God chooses to save a man, he does it easily and certainly. When God said, let there be light, the light didn't flicker, struggle, equivocate. It didn't go, mm, I know I can, I know I can, maybe I can, maybe I can. This morning our power went out when I was preparing this message. Electricity went off. And then I discovered it was off in the whole house. And then we discovered it was off in the whole block. But when God in the opening chapter of Genesis said, let there be light, it didn't come into existence with difficulty. Salvation takes place when God, by his own gracious choice, makes us alive or regenerate. A human being goes from spiritual death and they're called into existence a new nature that will cause a man to willingly respond to the gospel message and be saved. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, where it says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. This is Paul speaking. He, she says, he says, and Luke is writing, now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, that is, Paul and Luke. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. Paul, then Luke writes, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The text could just as easily read, The Lord opened her heart for response for the things spoken by Paul. The Bible seems to indicate that the Lord can open the human heart for response. And this is made, made clear to me in another way. Because sometimes I'd like to think, if I could just say this in a different way, if I could say it in a more winsome way, if I could say it in a more clever way, then surely you would believe me. But I've come to understand something, that if I can talk you into having a right relationship with God in Christ, someone more clever than me can talk you out of it. It isn't me talking you into something, persuading you. It's rather the Spirit of God coming to you, knocking on the door of your heart, saying what Gino is saying about salvation and about sin and about forgiveness and hope is available to you. These are hard words. How can you be sure that everyone apart from Jesus is spiritually dead? Paul supports his words 
by pointing out that those who are spiritually dead are held like captives. They are in bondage to three things. In order, the world, the devil, the flesh. Paul names them in that order. Look at verses 2 and 3. In verse 2 when it says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Not only is the unregenerate dead, if that weren't bad enough, the unregenerate are also deluded. How do we know? Paul reminds the Ephesians how they used to walk. That Greek word is very interesting. It's the word peripateo. It means the manner in which you walk, but in this sense, it means the way you live your life. It's your conduct. We have a different word. If I were to use, if I were to translate the word peripateo, I would probably use the word lifestyle. In other words, lifestyle isn't just something that you do on occasion. It's the way in which you live day after day and week after week and month after month. So the course or the manner of this world, the world here is the cosmos. It's a Greek word which isn't just simply a word that describes the physical universe in which you live, but it's a word that has a philosophical undertone. The word cosmos is, is a word where in our culture, in our society, we get the word cosmopolitan from it. It actually means a reference to this world's system. Another way of putting it is, this is the way in which the world works. This is the way in which the world thinks. This is the way in which the world operates. So the world here is the system that stands in opposition to God, to the gospel of God, to God's Messiah. Paul uses the same word or a description in Galatians 1.4 when he talks about this present evil age. So apart from Christ, we're captives, enslaved to this world's way of thinking. That's why your family members and friends who talk with you about Jesus think that you're talking crazy talk. You realize you're talking crazy talk, right? Nobody in this world really believes what you're saying. Tell me again, I'm a sinner in need of a savior and Jesus is that savior? Look what Paul writes. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This could be translated the prince of aerial powers or the master spirit of the air, or the commander of the spiritual powers of the air. You have to remember that in Jewish thinking, demons weren't headquartered under the earth, or even in objects in the earth. 
demons were headquartered in the atmosphere. This, this is the space that, that was between heaven, the outer universe, and the earth. And so in their way of thinking, the people who headquartered in the atmosphere were invisible spirit beings who circulated in the atmosphere. So the idea is that the people in the world, apart from Christ, are influenced and sometimes controlled by spirit beings, by Satan. As crazy as that sounds, the Bible refers to them as the children of disobedience because they belong to disobedience the way a child belongs to his or her parents. So when I'm making reference to my children, I'll sometimes call my children my children. My Jonathan, my Anthony, my Miguel. When I'm speaking of my, to my grandchildren, to no, to no end of frustration, I'll call them my Jaden or my Madison or my Django. I, I'll use the possessive noun to describe my relationship with them. Paul uses this possessive noun to describe the people who are deluded, walking in darkness, subject to chains, deluded by Satan and satanic beings. And he says it is evidenced by what they do. What do they do? They disobey God. It's evidence that they're not a part of God's family. See, contrary to popular belief, according to the Bible, not everyone is God's child. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, remember, Jesus, as he refers to the religious leaders, he says, that because they say, we're children of Abraham. He goes, okay, let me do the math here. I'm trying to remember, at what point did Abraham ever try to kill me? Never. But you want to kill me just like your father wanted to kill me. He said, you are your, of your father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And so in verse three, look what it says, among whom also, we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So he makes a description of you and of me, that you were once a part of this world and you thought like the world and you conducted yourself like the world and you embraced the notions of the world, trapped in a singular delusion that the gospel wasn't true and that Christ wasn't real. And then of course he makes reference again to these things called the flesh. We were dead in sin, subjects of Satan, controlled by lust, among whom also we once conducted in the lust of our flesh. Here the word lust is, is a word that could also be translated desires. And remember what the flesh is in the Bible. It isn't just the physical, physiological flesh and bone that occupy your body. Let me be blunt. Your flesh, according to the Bible, is everything that you are. 
apart from Christ. I want that to sink in for just a moment. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. You mean even the good things? Even the attractive things? You know, you may have scored high in school and you may have been a straight A student and, and you may be a person who has done some admirable things and some clever things and some commendable things. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's only one thing that actually gets God's attention when it comes to acceptance. And that's Christ. Remember what we learned in the first chapter. You're chosen, adopted, accepted in Christ. And so he says, among whom we also once conducted ourselves, Paul lumps Jew and Gentile into one pitiful pot of profligacy, selfish lust, desire, greed, carnality. Paul paints a picture. This is who we used to be. We used to be the people who lived to satisfy ourselves. We were by nature children of wrath. And this is Paul's way of saying the object of God's just punishment. When Paul uses that term, the children of wrath, he is using it to express those children who find themselves apart from and estranged from God who have only one thing to look forward to and that's the judgment of God. Adam and Eve began life as objects of God's affection. But then they became objects of God's wrath and rebellion and disobedience. And there was a time in your life where you were the object of wrath. But remember what the Bible is basically saying. God was not content to just simply make you an object of wrath, but to make you an object of affection so he would save you. So people in the world are directed by demons, corrupted by the flesh, poured into a mold of this world's way of thinking. All people apart from Christ stand condemned. And if you're like me, and I have every reason to believe that some of you are like me, when I was an unbeliever, that rubbed me the wrong way to no end. What do you mean? God's going to just let everyone go to hell? The Bible says that apart from Jesus, no one is saved. The Bible says there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. With nothing but the shadow of God's judgment in their future, we have an obligation and a responsibility to tell them God loves you. He's willing to save you in Christ. Chuck Swindoll writes this he says, quote, 
Like guilty prisoners with too many charges to count, we waited before the judge of the universe without hope, his wrath against sin, a holy, just revulsion against what is contrary and opposes his holy nature and will, demands that sin be justly punished. Jesus described the end result of God's wrath as Gehenna or hell, a place of outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth where their worm does not die. The fire is not quenched, unquote. He's quoting Matthew 8, 12, Mark 9, 44 and 46 and 48. J.I. Packer describes the horror of these images. The worm that dieth not it was an image, it seems, he says, for the endless dissolution of the personality by a condemning conscience, fire for the agonizing awareness of God's displeasure, outer darkness for knowledge of the loss, not merely of God, but of all good, everything good, that made life worth living, unquote, gnashing of teeth for self-condemnation and self-loathing. Unquote. Look at that expression in verse 3. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Here the idea is both our thoughts are impure, our impulses impure. It reminds me of the story of the little girl, I've told you this story, who was caught pulling her brother's hair and kicking him in the shins. And her mother said, Mary, what in the world has possessed you to pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shins? She replied, the devil made me pull his hair, but I think kicking him in the shins was my idea. Are there external things motivating? Yes. Are there internal things motivating? Yes. Paul gives a list of the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, when he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of anger or wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, which means party, and the like, which is a way of saying, think of this as a short list and I haven't included everything that could be on the list. He says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He paints a bitter picture of lost people. Oscar Wilde had a brilliant mind and great abilities. He had all the charm in the world and a great instinct to be kind. Yet he fell in disgrace and wound up in prison where he wrote these words, quote, the gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went down to the depths in search of new sensations. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought 
perversity became for me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. This is Oscar Wilde's way of saying, I did what I wanted and I didn't care who it hurt. I didn't care what became of them. He writes, I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one has to one day cry from the housetop. This is Oscar Wilde quoting the scripture, which he was very familiar with. He writes, I ceased to be the Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. You're all familiar with the expression, sow a thought, you reap an act. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. The little choices you make become larger choices that make you. Kent Hughes writes, quote, The dead, those without Christ, are dominated by the world the devil and the flesh the world dominates from without the flesh from within the devil from beyond these are the terrible dynamics of spiritual death unquote and so you look around at your family at your friends at your neighbors, at their lives. And you ask them a question, how are you? And they respond, I'm fine. I'm just fine. And you know it's not true. You know that there's an emptiness. You know there's a darkness. You know there's a wickedness. Romans 3.10, Paul will write, as it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. So Paul paints this picture of the sinner, dead, deluded, disobedient, defiled, doomed. And look at the very next verse in verse 4. Rescued by love. Look what it says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I keep telling you that I'm threatening to write a book called The Big Butts in the Bible. And this is going to be the biggest but of all. Because this verse might be the greatest contrast in all of the scripture. When I read this verse, you know what it reminded me of? A lot of my life was spent in Southern California. And in Southern California, there's two geographical areas. One is called Mount Whitney, 
And the other one is called the Death Valley. You know what, 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 what they have in common? Mount Whitney is the highest mountain elevation in the continental United States. Death Valley in the Mojave Desert is the lowest point. At the lowest point in the Death Valley, it's 280 feet below sea level. Mount Whitney is some 80 miles away. This verse is that contrast between something so low and something so high. Read it, rich in mercy. God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Paul doesn't simply write off God's rich mercy and God's great love. It's set in this stark contrast of what we've been saved from. You need to really think about this. Here's Paul's statement. You were dead. You were deluded. You were disobedient. You were defiled. You were doomed. But God doesn't just simply have pity on you. He doesn't just look at you and go, wow, I feel bad for you. Just like you have this past week. How can you not watch the news? How can you not see the images from southeast Texas and Louisiana? How can you watch literally hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands of people walk away from their homes? They've lost everything. You see them sobbing at what used to be their home and what used to be their life, and you feel bad for them. And God doesn't just simply feel bad for you. He's made a way out for you. He loves you because you see, it's one thing to feel bad about all of those people and all of their loss and all of the difficulty, but imagine if you had unlimited resources and you could give every person everything back that they have lost. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? God doesn't just feel bad about your circumstance. He plans a rescue. He initiates a rescue. One of the images that we saw from the flood was this man from Louisiana who had come all the way from, from Lake Charles. And they said, hey, what are you gonna do? And the man from the bayou said, I'm gonna go save some lives. And then he left. Think about what God does. Paul describes God's motive for the rescue. It lies in this endless ocean that we call his mercy. And then we're given a glimpse of his expansive love. And we sometimes forget just how great the chasm is between what we were and what God has done. The chasm between our sin and his holiness. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine a man gets drunk and he drives his car and he kills a child. Your child. Your grandchild. He goes to jail for involuntary manslaughter. He serves his time. He pays his debt. He 
winds up being held guiltless before the law. He did his time, he paid his debt, he served his sentence. But does the penalty restore the child to the parents? The parents have been hurt, the family's been hurt. They've been deprived, they've been injured. There's no punishment, there's no jail time that can satisfy the injustice. The only way a relationship could even possibly take place is someone would have to restore that relationship. And the only way that that relationship could be restored is if for reasons that seem incomprehensible, the parents would offer forgiveness. Because only the one offended can offer the terms of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so God does just that for you and you and you and you. He makes a way for all of your sin to go away. He initiates forgiveness Forgiveness and reconciliation on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. In other words, this is the message of the Bible that something has gone really wrong. And God is able to make it right. J.I. Packer vividly describes what happens, quote, between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of our Lord Jesus, unquote. God forgives you. He sends his son. We read in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one life for his friends. And that's what, exactly what Jesus will do. He'll lay down his life for you. He'll die the death that you deserve. He'll experience the punishment meant for you and for me. You know, the story is told of a husband who's, who kept saying to his wife, Oh, honey, oh, honey, I would die for you. And his wife would always say, Oh, Harry, you always say that. And then you never do. <laughs> But Jesus really will. He really will. He'll really die. God's love and Christ's death are not some silly theological mumbo jumbo. It's not even wishful thinking. Our sin our real problem, our deep difficulty required a real solution. And so God gives his son. He gives his son for sinners who were dead in trespasses and sins. But the gift of God, it says, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And look, rescued for life. Look what it says in verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It's almost as if 
He's overcome with emotion. Think about this. God loved us. God liberated us. God made us alive together with Christ. Yes, Jesus died, but Jesus came back to life. One Old Testament scholar wrote, quote, in the majority of occurrences in the New Testament, the verb to make alive, what you see in verse five, he made us alive, that verb, to make alive is a synonym in the New Testament for raise from the dead. So when it says made you alive, there was a sense prior to Christ where you were physically alive, you were emotionally alive. But there was something empty, dead, gone. Man is radically dead and he can only be saved, rescued by the radical nature of the resurrection, this supernatural nature that comes from on high and changes you forever. Human beings are broadly placed in, in, in two categories in the Bible. Italian people and those who wish they were. No, that's, I keep saying that because it, because it just seems so silly to put two different groups of people in this wide divide, but it remains true. The two categories are those who are dead and those who have been resurrected to life. Those are the two categories that exist because, ladies and gentlemen, no one no one crawls away from a casket. But one person comes back to life. Jesus. Jesus does the incredible and the impossible. Ken Weiss translates this passage this way. But God, being wealthy in the sphere of mercy because of his great love with which he loved us and we being dead with respect to our trespasses made us alive together with the Christ. By grace you've been saved completely in time past with the present result that you are in a state of salvation which persists through the present time and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So look at verses six and seven. Six and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, once again, let's do this simple, simple, simple. Let's connect the dots. Verse four, he loved us. Verse five, he liberated us. Verse six, he lifts us up. Look what Paul says. He raises us up together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. We're in this together. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Just look back one page. Ephesians 1.20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly places. Paul places Jesus in heaven. Remember, he places you in heaven. Now think about this. We do not simply have reservations in heaven. We have a place in heaven now. I have a friend who just bought a home in Orlando. And he said to me, do you ever go to Orlando? I go, of course, who doesn't go to Orlando? He goes, I have a house there and you can use it when you go to Orlando. Can you believe it? He has a house in Orlando and he's offered it to me. You have a place in heaven, not just a reservation. Don't you understand? Here's what Paul is saying. You have permanent citizenship in heaven. He writes about this later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each Christian has dual citizenship. You have civic responsibilities here, but you have spiritual and eternal residence there. Now think about what's happening in the text. Paul refuses to separate himself from the saints raised us up together. We sit together. Paul is telling the Ephesians, not just simply, I'm there and you, you could be there too if you give to my ministry, if you sow into this wonderful ministry, if you give me your best seed faith offering. He doesn't say that. He's in jail. He's in a Roman prison. He's awaiting trial. He has every reason to believe that he isn't going to make it out. But he reminds himself and then he reminds the people that he's writing to. We have a place in heaven. I'm going there. And so are you. And in verse 7, look what it says. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the first sentence of his sermon. The whole rest of the book is the rest of the sermon. What did God do? Verse 4. He loved us. Verse 5, he liberated us. Verse 6, he lifted us up. Verse 7, Paul gives the reason why he did all of that. In all eternity future, he says, there's a reason why God loves you, has displayed mercy and kindness towards you, because God in all of eternity future wanted to be able to show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pause. Have you ever asked the question, 
save me? What in the world? Why in the world would he find me, rescue me, forgive me, save me? Why in the world would he do such a thing like that? This is the answer in this verse. He did it so that he could display us as trophies of his grace. You know, sometimes when gentlemen get up in age, they abandon their wife. You know, around 60, they trade them in. They say, I think I'm going to trade you in for two 30-year-olds. And they get what's called a trophy wife. It's all very disgusting. But God says, I'm going to save you. And you're going to be my trophy you're going to be my trophy of grace. In other words, as you walk into the future, into all of eternity, all of heaven and all of the beings of heaven are going to look at you and go, you're God's trophy. Oh, I know what you are. You're the object of his mercy. You're the object of his grace. You're the object of his love. Now, I want you to think again, we, we touched on this last week. Imagine all the treasure in the universe. And then imagine every treasure. Imagine all the land and all the sea and all the gold and all the precious stone and all art and every bauble on the home shopping network. Everything located on Amazon or eBay. Everything that you've ever thought could possibly have any value. And then God picks you as his trophy. He doesn't show them the infinite wonders of an inexpressible universe. He doesn't show them the raging sea and the majestic mountain and the spiral galaxy or the endless treasures that might be found in parallel universes. God shows them you. <laughs> this is my treasure in heaven. This is the reason and the purpose for us and for God. And the most immediate result of being made alive in Christ is that you get to be seated with Jesus in the heavenly place. Not only are we made alive and are resurrected, but now think about where we've come from. Think about the pit. And now think about the pinnacle. In the Colorado State Prison, there's two former Illinois governors. Do you realize that if you're the governor of Illinois, you have a 50% chance of going to prison? <laughs> but imagine from the pinnacle. Think of those sad, sad cases that you've known in your lifetime. How do you go from being a Heisman Trophy winner like O.J. Simpson to just now? just maybe being released from jail. How is it possible that you can have fame and fortune and so much and then all of a sudden wind up with so little? 
You see, this world will come to an end. Satan, who began his life at the pinnacle of heaven, is going to be removed and taken down to the pit. And the pit where you started your journey will be forever gone as you live at the pinnacle and you share Christ's glory and his exaltation. It should overwhelm you. We are raised in eternity to be with Jesus. Now think about, think about this single sentence in the Greek language. Paul takes us from the lowest place to the highest place, from the pit to the pinnacle. John Stott tells the story of one of his principles. Upon Stott's retirement, a portrait was unveiled of him. I thought about this because we found a portrait of me up in the mezzanine, hidden away where it should have remained. But the principal commented that in the future, people aren't going to ask, who is that man? They're going to ask, who painted his picture? And in eternity future, in heaven, People aren't going to ask who you are. They're going to ask, how is it that Jesus painted such a picture of himself in you? How can the dead have life? They have to experience a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Jesus defeats death and sin and then he makes us alive who are lost, who are deluded, who are poured into this world's mold, who are soldiers of Satan, led by our own lusts. And then he forgave us. And then he gives us a place in heaven right next to Jesus. The story is told of an old woman who came to Jesus under the preaching ministry of a guy named George Matheson. She lived in this dingy cellar that reeked of darkness and dirt. And after she got saved, she moved into an attic department. And she was still poor. And when the pastor came to visit, he said to her, I see you've changed your house. Aye, she said, I have. You cannot hear George Matheson preach and live in a cellar. The attic was light and airy and clean. And the cellar was dark and dismal and dirty. Jesus takes you from the cellar and places you in the attic. He rescues you from death in love. He rescues you for life and he rescues you for a reason to show his kindness and his mercy and his grace forever. And that's just the first sentence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, it can be overwhelming. But Lord, I pray that each man and each woman, each person who is here, and each person who listens to this message would somehow enter into a new way of thinking. Not only about where they came from, and not just simply of where they are, but where God's grace will finally lead them. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray that we as men and women who know you and love you, that, Lord, we would be willing to share this great love and this great hope. Heavenly Father, I pray that the men and women listening would have courage to come out of the closet and tell the truth about what they were and what Christ has done in their life. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be shy about pointing people to Jesus, about offering the one, the one sustaining thing that will get them out of that dark, empty, horrible pit that will break the delusion, that will cause the mold to melt. And so, Lord, again, I pray that in grace and in mercy and in love, you would extend the invitation to anyone who happens to be listening that they too can come to Christ, that they can experience forgiveness, that they can be taken from the pit to the pinnacle by simply trusting Christ, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. And so, Lord, do the work that only you can do. Save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.